I'm going to start tonight by observing something that is decidedly un-Christmas, at least at first blush. And so just bear with me a little bit. I want to start by saying that this world is, is fairly impoverished. And, and I, I know what you're thinking. In the United States, it doesn't feel that impoverished. I don't know if we're, we've been really good at hiding it or ignoring it, but, but I think you make a case. In, in the United States, we don't feel the weight of the poverty of the world. But there are places in the world that, that just don't have the luxury of hiding it. And, and I've been to a couple of those places in my life. I've been able to travel. I've been really blessed to do that. And, and there are some places that are just incredibly impoverished. I've, I've been to interior Mexico, and there's, there's quite a bit of poverty there. Rural Guatemala is, is an impoverished place. I, I've been to uh, Cairo, Egypt. Cairo, Egypt has 22 million people, and the average wage that a person makes in Cairo is $1 a day. There's poverty there. It's it's pretty amazing. But I have never seen poverty in, in all of my travels that compares with what I saw in the dump in Quito, Ecuador. I was down in Quito, and this is back when I was a pastor in California, and we went across um, or flew down to Quito, and, and we were helping with an orphanage, but part of the time that we were there, the orphanage, the workers of the orphanage, go to the dump nearby and minister to the people who live in the dump. And you wouldn't believe the conditions that they live in. No running water, no sanitation, just you know, urine coursing through the streets, always muddy, rainy all the time. There are no houses. People live under cardboard. That Literally, the house is a piece of cardboard folded over a person. We were there to to serve soup because the people were hungry and to wash their hair because there was just lice everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And you were trying to be incarnational American Christians and, you know, God came near and so we're trying to go near and so we're washing people's hair. But I'm telling you, my prayer is, Lord, please help me not get lice. I had a lot more hair back then. And, and I, was, I was doing it like this. Like, that, that's my view of incarnational. Like, stay as far away from these people as possible while still washing their hair. And it was just an overwhelming scene in the dump and the people of the dump in Quito, Ecuador. But the one place that, or the one thing that most arrested me, most surprised me, the thing I don't think I'll ever forget is that as I was washing some young man's hair like this, I heard from behind me something I never thought I would hear, which was the voice of an American. And I remember turning around, like going, who is that? Because it's not part of our group. Our, part, our group was over here. This is another person, and he's behind me. And I turn around, and it's an American. And he's coming to me, and he has a warm smile, and he says, hey, you know, my, my name's Bill or Ted. I can't remember now. And I'm like, who are you with? And he says, well, I'm with this mission organization, and I'm like, well, where are y'all? And he's like, what do you mean, where are we? And I was like, well, did you, did you come from downtown Quito? And he's like, no, we came from right over there. And I, I'm like, well, how long are you staying? And he smiles and he goes, oh, we live here. And I, I'm like, you live in Quito? No, we live in the dump. I'm like, where? I'm looking for a house. And there's not a house. There's, there's cardboard. He's like, right over there. And I'm like, 
wait a second, it's, it's like a slow fog. And I'm like, well, hold on. You're telling me you're from the United States of America? And this guy looked, and forgive me, I think you'll know what I'm saying here. He looked normal. And, and I said, you're, you're telling me you are from the United States and you live in the dump in Quito? He was like, yeah. And I was like, that's unbelievable. He was like, it's a joy. And I just remember being shocked that someone would give up what we all take for granted so as to, to go and live in a place by choice. It was his own free will in a place like the dump in Quito, Ecuador. It, it, it absolutely shocked me. With, with that amazement in mind, I want to direct your attention to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Now, we read it. You already know this. The word is Jesus. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Jesus left his rightful home in God's glorious heaven, put on flesh, literally tabernacled among us, to take up residence in this impoverished world. It's, it's really unprecedented. It's stunning. How much more shocking is God willingly giving up heaven to be born in a manger than a guy from the United States, as sacrificial as it is, giving up a home in the United States to go live under cardboard in the dump in Quito, Ecuador. It's literally unprecedented. I think sometimes we romanticize the first Christmas. We, we think of clean sheep instead of stinky sheep. We, we think of a quiet night instead of barn animals baying all throughout the night. We, we don't think of the flies and the manure. We don't think furthermore about God giving up his omniscience and his omnipresence and his omnipotence to take on flesh. We don't think about these things. We've made the incarnation quaint. And in doing so, we've forgotten that it is unprecedented. John Wesley, the brother of Charles Wesley, has a great quote that I love to think about every time I think about the incarnation or Christmas. And, and it says, have you ever thought of the humiliation which God went through? He not only became a man, but was born into a lowly family by a woman of ill repute in a stinking stable, only to be moved almost immediately after birth as a child of refugees Jesus lived for 30 years as a nobody. How many of us could be nobodies for even a year? It was a long road from heaven to Bethlehem and longer still from Nazareth to Calvary. Imagine the absolutely holy God of the universe submitting to circumcision, to baptism, to living in the wilderness for 40 days, to rejection by religious leaders. And then the living God submitted to death even death on a cross. And after all this, John Wesley goes on to say, he chose a bride like us. What a great quote. John Wesley understood that the incarnation, that God came near, is absolutely unprecedented. Exchanging heaven for earth, there's no comparison. There, there's nothing that gets close. Some things get closer than others, but nothing 
gets close. Now, it begs the question, why would a glorious and all-knowing God make such an ignoble trip from heaven to earth? Like, why would he do that? John gives us at least four reasons Jesus dwelt among us. At least four reasons. Jesus came, first reason, so we could see God's glory. You see that in verses 14 and verse 18. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he goes on in verse 18 and says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. Without Jesus coming to earth, we would never really know what God was like. Not like we can know him now. We could, we could know a few things about God, but Jesus took on flesh and he demonstrated God. And so we encounter his glory. The, the phrase is used in verse 14, glory as of the only son from the father. Now, as of the only Son is monogeneos. Monogeneos. And, and mono means just what you think, one. Mono, one. Geneos means to come from. It's where we get the word generation, it's where we get the word gene. Geneos means to, to come from. And, and so the English translations, some say, only begotten. The one who came from the Father and the only one. And, and so the idea monogeneus means unique. It also says, pay attention. It's used nine times in the New Testament. And every time that this word monogeneus is used, it's like, don't miss this, please. Don't miss this. I wonder if we've missed it. I wonder if we're so used to it that we've kind of become inoculated to its significance. The, a publishing house called Grosset and Dunlop, Dunlap brought a panel of 28 educators and historians together to determine the 100 most significant events in world history. So 28 educators, historians coming together, what are the 100 most significant things that have happened in world history? They said, these 28 men and women, that the discovery of America was the most significant thing that ever happened. You might guess that most of these people were from the United States of America. That seems really, really like self-focused. But that was number one. Number two, in second place, was the invention of movable type by Gutenberg, where we get the Gutenberg Bible. That was the number two most significant thing in world history. Now, 11 different events tied for third, which kind of makes you think that the historians and the educators are a lot like politicians. They're, they're going to kind of hedge their bets on everything. 11 things tied for third place. That seems kind of ridiculous to me. But that leaves Jesus tied for 14th place with the writing of the U.S. Constitution, the development of ether the x-ray, and the creation of the airplane. Tied for 14th place. I think we've cheapened the glory of God. I, 
I think Jesus as number 14 is ridiculous. Until the Constitution eradicates sin, until x-rays somehow give eternal life, and until airplanes can take your sinful soul directly to heaven, like, that's not a tie. That's not a tie at all. Nothing compares to God taking on humanity and living amongst us and ultimately dying that we might live. Jesus is God's glory. That's the first reason Jesus came, to demonstrate God's glory. Look at verse 16 with me. For from his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we have received grace upon grace. I love that expression. To me, grace upon grace sounds like waves of the ocean just lapping up on a shore, and there's always more coming. And it's like grace upon grace upon grace. We are receiving God's grace forever and and consistently. And, And that's what Jesus' coming has done for us. That's why Christmas is something to celebrate. But the third reason Jesus came was to give us life in him as children of God. Verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Note verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. They were born of God. We don't gain life by our lineage, by our relationships, by any sort of human decision, or even by our own common decency. We gain life by believing in God. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, that's also written by the same author, as you might have guessed, says that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. If Jesus doesn't come, if Jesus isn't born among us, if the incarnation doesn't happen, and he doesn't go on to his subsequent death on the cross, we are dead men and women walking. There is no hope for salvation. There is no hope in heaven. There is no hope in relationship with God. But by his death, he bears the consequence of our sin and we receive the unconditional love of God. That is the message of the Bible over and over again. It is what we call the good news or the gospel. And we gain life by receiving or accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the last reason that Jesus came, and it's related to the third reason, I, I just direct your attention to 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, and I read part of it, but I want to read all of it, verse 9 and 10, because I think it really shapes Christmas and its significance. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. Now, that's a fancy theological word, but it means a satisfaction of God's divine wrath against sin. To be a propitiation for our sins. In this the love of God was made manifest, was made obvious, was demonstrated among us. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus came to give us life. That was the third reason. But ultimately, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says that he did this to demonstrate the ultimate manifestation of love. Like, it was a labor of love. He came near, and he came to a cross to demonstrate love. Look, everybody, it's Christmas, and Christmas is a great time. Tomorrow, we will gather with people that we care about, and we will give and receive presents. And that, that is fun. I, I love Christmas time. We give presents, at least on a good day, to demonstrate our love for others. Now, (laughs) I understand the politics of Christmas. If someone's giving you a gift, you feel obligated to give them a gift. I get it. It's a fallen world. But on a good day, on a good day, we give to demonstrate our love for the people we love. I want to point something else out that I don't want you to forget. Presents are gifts. And by definition, gifts aren't earned. Like if you're sitting here today going, I hope I get a good gift tomorrow because I really deserve it, you've misunderstood what a gift is. A gift is not earned. A wage is earned. If you deserve something, it's called a wage. If you don't deserve it, but you get it anyway, it's called a gift. That's what a gift is. So you can't earn a gift. A gift is, by definition, unearned. Remember this Christmas, that the greatest gift was given by God. It wasn't earned. It showed us God's glory. It gives us grace upon grace. It gives us life, and ultimately it demonstrates God's perfect love for us. And it is a he. It is a he, and he is the one and only, the unique one, the unprecedented one. He is Jesus. He is unprecedented. And he's the greatest gift. So Merry Christmas. Let me pray. Father, help us to encounter you in your gospel, to encounter you in your incarnation in a way that is fresh. Lord, some of us have been walking as followers of your son Jesus for longer than we'd care to admit. And I pray that this would be new to us. You, you would give us an ability to see it with fresh eyes. Some of us have grown up in church and, and we have never bowed our knees to Jesus. And we are trying to do it on our own. And we are trying to live life in our own power, by our own will or even our own ethic. And we can't, Lord. I pray that you would allow us to fall on our knees because of the gospel. And God, there's people in between all of us. And we all need to get over ourselves and we all need to adore you because you first adored us and demonstrated it in the incarnation that led to a cross. God, help us to believe it in the depths of our soul, that our souls might be saved, that we might know you personally, both for eternity in heaven, but today as we walk out of this place. 
I pray that we would believe in Jesus. I pray that you would give us life through that. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.